Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hello and welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and here's what's making news this week. Anton Di Pasquale, Cam Waters, and Chaz Mostert took a win each away from the Darwin Triple Crown on a weekend that saw Di Pasquale actually make some inroads on Shane Van Gisbergen's points lead. Dale Wood took two Carrera Cup wins to Harry Jones's one, and Mike Jones won two of the three Australian Superbike races, the other going to Wayne Maxwell. Joey Mawson, meanwhile, is now a two-time Australian Drivers Champion after wrapping up the S5000 title. Despite not winning a race in Darwin or even finishing the final race, the race wins went to Cooper Webster, Caleb Natoa and Aaron Cameron. Supercars has confirmed that both the New Zealand and Sandown Super Sprint events will go ahead this year. Both had been under a cloud of doubt recently due to freight costs in the case of New Zealand and more general cost-cutting with Sandown. That means we will have our full 13-round calendar providing the Adelaide 500, which isn't officially on the schedule just yet but is expected to be confirmed very soon, goes ahead in December as planned. There's some tension between Walkinshaw, Andretti United, Supercars and Motorsport Australia after Chas Mostert was disqualified from Saturday's race in Darwin for the illegal use of a cooling fan on the grid. WAU did lodge a notice of appeal over the penalty, but that was rejected by Motorsport Australia on the grounds of it being filed too late. It looks like we could have a shock mid-season driver swap on the cards in supercars. Now, Gary Jacobson has been linked to a premature exit from Premier Racing. It could happen as soon as before the Townsville 500 in a few weeks. Um, It appears the split is on the cards following a a difficult Darwin round uh, for Gary. Uh, Zane Goddard and Kurt Kostecki are among those currently being linked to the seat if the Jacobson Premier split goes ahead. And the Australian Grand Prix is set to stay in Melbourne until at least 2035 thanks to a huge new deal between Formula One and the Australian Grand Prix Corporation. As part of the deal, the AGP will be the opening round of the Formula One season at least five times. 2024 and 2025 are locked in as round one, and the other three will be spread out across the 10 years following that. In other AGP news, FIA Formula 2 and Formula 3 will make a first appearance at Albert Park next year. That will, of course, impact the local support categories, but Supercars has been assured they will still be on the undercard. Joining me this week to discuss all that and much more is a teammate that dries his hair with a battery-operated air blower, Stefan Bartholomew. Stefan, how are you this week? I'm very well, thanks, Andrew. Plenty of uh, tasty headlines in that for us to uh, dig into. Let's uh, let's go. Yep, there was uh, there was plenty going on up in Darwin, and I think that's a pretty good starting point. We talked last week about what an important weekend it was going to be for Dick Johnson Racing in terms of bouncing back after a kind of lacklustre Winton round, at least by their standards. Are you satisfied that we, we saw that from DJR in Darwin? 
Yeah, absolutely. It was a very strong weekend for them and they really needed to reassert some some authority there and and like for, for Will Davo to go out and get two poles, especially that shootout lap that he did, that was uh, that was very impressive to start. And when you consider too that he didn't have Richard Harris, his regular engineer there, the way he put together his weekend, even though he didn't win a race, was very good on that side. And then and then Anton clearly that winning a race was important for him and Shane Van Gisbergen kind of gave uh, gave everyone a bit of help in the championship with uh, what happened to him in race three. So uh, it feels like uh, there's a sort of a, a little bit of a chance that uh, these guys could uh, really threaten for, for the title now. Yeah, it kind of is interesting. I mean, I think DJR's back in the lead of the team's championship now and obviously that, that gap has come down in the driver's championship thanks to you know, the last race uh, for Shane. An interesting weekend for Shane. You know, not a disaster in terms of pace by any stretch of the imaginations, but it always feels a bit weird when we have a full weekend and he doesn't win at least, you know, one of the races. Um, he wasn't a fan at all of the minimum tyre pressure rule. Then there's the heat that he doesn't like. There was probably a bit of jet lag heading into the weekend. He sort of said on Friday he still wasn't sleeping perfectly. Um, and it all kind of, you know, he was just in that sort of, I don't know, that slightly grumpy Shane mood all weekend. Um, it all ended with that awkward clash with Will Davison in the final race, which obviously cost him and the team a whole heap of points. Um, what did you make of Giz's weekend? I think the biggest problem for Shane was he just didn't quite have the qualifying speed he needed. Yep. When you're starting on the second or third row, it's not always a huge impediment for him to win the races, but if you throw in this tyre pressure rule, I think that really hurt his, his chances to fight through and, he could have won race one potentially without that pit stop issue, but it wouldn't have yeah. been easy to um, to make the track position back like we've seen him be able to do before. So, you know, he still salvaged a couple of third places from the first two races, but then uh, that clash with Davo damaged the steering and it was as good as over from there. But I've got to say, even though it didn't actually matter in the end, the penalty he got for that that hit with, with Will I'll be interested in your take, but I thought that was a bit harsh. I mean, the gap opened there and, and he filled it and it was just because they they'd clashed like wheel to wheel that um, it had such a big consequence. Like as a viewer, I'd hate for him not to try that move on in that sort of situation. Yeah, I think the telling thing is that Davo wasn't all that fussed about it. Like he wasn't blowing up about it. Um, TV spoke to him after the race. He didn't blow up to it, um, myself and – and uh, another journo spoke to him later, you know, and he still was just completely calm about it. Um, and generally, a driver will be more sensitive to contact like that compared to the penalty that gets dished out than less sensitive to it. So he was sort of saying, well, he got penalised, so I guess he did something wrong, but there wasn't like an immediate like, what on earth is going on here? This bloke's come down and hit me. It was sort of, like you say, it all looks perfectly fine and like he was just going to lean on him a bit in the corner um, and it was obviously just an odd sort of angle of contact that made it much bigger contact than it looked like it was going to be. So, yeah, look, I think the way that it kind of all played out, the 15 seconds probably was unnecessary. Um, but, yeah, interesting interesting weekend. I think you're right, you know, when you talk about the tyre rules and the impact they were having on the passing because I think we all sat there on Saturday night and went, oh, if they didn't have that delay in the pit stop, Shane would have won that race. But by Sunday night, I don't think he would have won that race. I don't think he was going to get through those guys. I think it was just so difficult to pass. And that is how Shane normally, you know, Shane makes his positions in the second stint to win races because he often doesn't have the qualifying speed and he's struggling with starts at the moment. So they, you know, they find a way to work the tyre 
and for him to pit late and be able to pass cars late in the race. And that just looked way too difficult to do this weekend. So I, when I look back at that race one, you sort of go, I don't think he was going to win it anyway. I don't think he was going to get through two cars that that late in the race. Mm. Let, let's have a chat about the tyre stuff. Um, we went into just a backtrack a little bit. We went into the weekend with a raft of tyre rule changes, including a higher minimum pressure of 20 PSI and a ban on sunbaking tyres, as we discussed in great detail last week. Now, the sunbaking rule definitely didn't last long. Uh, in fact, it never actually made it to the regulations at all. Once it was announced that it was coming, there was apparently a lot of pushback from teams who felt it would be really difficult to police and difficult to judge what an appropriate penalty would be to discourage people from doing it, but you know, not have a ridiculous situation where one ray of sunlight has seen someone thrown out of a race meeting. Pretty much the exact points that you made last week, Stefan, about you know some of the challenges of this rule. The teams were still limited um, on where the tyres could be laying around, so they had to be within their areas, but in the end you could lay them in the sun, and there were plenty of them laying in the sun because there was a lot of sun, let me tell you. It was rather warm up there over the weekend. Um, as for the high minimum pressure, Stefan, I really don't know. The drivers definitely didn't like it, which doesn't mean it's a bad idea because drivers often don't like things that are um, that don't work directly for them. But there was a really interesting exchange in the press conference on Friday when Shane alluded to not being happy about it and when pressed you know, on it, he said, oh, I, I can't comment because I'm going to get in trouble. And as a side note, I think that's absolute rubbish that a driver feels he can't express his honest opinion on a sporting matter like that in public. I mean, they shouldn't be forced into being cheerleaders and their open public feedback on issues like this is important for everybody, um, Andre Heimgartner did step up and speak about it and how it would box drivers in on strategy. In the end, we did see varying strategies work across the three races, so that wasn't necessarily a relevant point, but it was certainly a consideration. Um, we had three fascinating races. There's no question about that, but I guess the big question is, were the races fascinating because of the new tyre rules or would we have seen a similar result at 17 PSI? Would we have seen more passing perhaps at 17 PSI. Stefan, where do you stand on all that? Well, it's it's hard to be absolutely definitive, but certainly from from the feedback and the way the races looked, I, I think the 20 PSI did hurt the racing. Like it, yeah. it was it was intriguing, as you said, and there was a good spread of contenders and winners, which is important. And so overall it was an entertaining weekend. But the biggest problem with, with this category and with passing is is front tire temps going yep. through the roof when you're right behind somebody. So, yeah, I think that that Chas Mostert-Anton Di Pasquale battle late in race three was the most exciting part of the weekend, but really it was the case in point of Anton had way younger tyres, but he yep. had no front grip. Like, unless you do it absolutely straight away, as soon as you spend a couple of laps behind the car in front, you're done. Like it, yeah. it needs a tire that degrades with kilometers, not one that loses grip when you're behind somebody else, which um, yeah. this exacerbated the problem that people have been struggling with, which is why someone like Shane, even before they did a race with this tire pressure, was um, clearly not, uh, not a fan of the regulations. So I think that the other element of this, like, so if it was based purely on entertainment, this decision, I say put the 20 PSI rule in the bin straight away. Don't take that yeah. to Townsville. Get rid of it. But the initial instigator, I believe, was actually Dunlop after Winton finding some sidewall stress issues with the super soft tyre. So I'm not sure whether they ended up going to 20 as a mix of building a safety margin and improving the racing. But I believe that the initial instigator of this was 
to build a safety margin in because like running a super soft tire at the hottest event you go to does feel like a bit of a risk. So yeah, yeah that, whether it needed to go all the way up to 20 or not, I'm not sure, but I don't think it was purely based on entertainment. Oh, for sure, and um, and it was definitely easier on the sidewalls. I think there was, you know, uh, I spoke to, to to Kevin Fitzsimmons from Dunlop on Sunday evening, and he was fairly satisfied with how the tire held up. Still not seeing the deg. It's still even having a rounder shape of the tire. Ha- certainly hasn't brought in this massive um, deg as Chas Mostert showed uh, in that Sunday race. I think what's really telling about the way the tire was behaving um, is the way that in the second race, I think it was Shane like. He was in the second stint. He made a decision that he couldn't. There was no point trying to pass the guys in front of him. The best thing he could do was actually drop back and make sure he really hobbled the guy behind him and just cooked his tires and then just completely just consolidated the position because trying to fight up the front, he was just going to run the risk of doing damage to his rubber. Well, I'll just drop back, which is obviously the complete opposite of what we want to see drivers trying to do. We want to see them trying to make passes and that sort of stuff. But he obviously learned on for, on Saturday that, that that just isn't going to happen. So here's how I'm going to make the race play out. So Yeah, yeah. yeah we um we've we talk about that all the time with Shane that um, if he's not leading in those opening laps, he just backs it off slightly to create that plus one second to the car in front to to control his own front tire temp. Yeah. Um, but it was absolutely so obvious in Darwin we had the situation I think earlier in the race you were talking about where the whole field was nose to tail except there was a one second gap perfectly between Shane and whoever was in front of him like it was so obvious what he's doing but it's it's interesting nobody else does that yeah absolutely there is yeah there are moments where you think this guy's brain does operate on a slightly different level to some of the other guys out there so do you think that this that this these tire the, the the tire rules maybe flattered Mostert's performance on Sunday. Not saying it wasn't a great drive because you got to hit your marks and not make a mistake, particularly on rubber that's maybe struggling a little bit. But you know, it was sort of hailed as one of his greatest drives. Was it maybe flattered by those tire rules a little bit? Yeah, I think it was. As usual, it's sort of a six of one, half a dozen to the other. Um, but clearly, he had the new rears, so his drive traction onto the big straight was still very good. Um, so Anton didn't really look like he was a show into turn one. And yep. then for the rest of it, yeah, you just um, – your front tire temp's too high to really do much in the rest. So, yeah, amazing drive from Chaz, and it was such a surprise because I thought he was going to sink back through the field um, after that restart because of how old his tyres were. But clearly there was a bit more than just uh, just driver stuff going on there. Well, I'll tell you who didn't care, and that was Ryan Walkinshaw because he celebrated that win pretty hard <laughs> by reliving his DJ days and hitting the decks at uh, Nathan Prendergast's send-off uh, in Darwin on Sunday night. Speaking of uh, of Walkinshaw and Mostert, let's move on to the most controversial topic of the Darwin Triple Crown weekend. Uh, Chaz was disqualified from two sessions. Uh, the first was Friday practice two for a tie that dipped under that controversial 20 PSI mark on his way out of the pits and onto the track. Um, the team took that one on the chin. Not much I could do about that. The second was for the illegal use of a cooling fan on the grid before Saturday's race. Chaz finished the race fourth but was then stripped of the result entirely after a hearing, a post-race hearing. Now, the team admitted to the breach in the hearing. They said it was a human error. Uh, a mechanic turned the fan on as they do in pit lane and put it on the front of the car on the grid 
Uh, it was running for about two minutes before the team realised it was sitting there and and took it off. So it's a pretty simple mistake there. Um, just to explain why that is illegal, Supercars banned the use of heating and cooling fans ahead of the Townsville round back in 2019. And the idea was to cut costs um, and also act as a, a slight deterrent to the aggressive warming of tyres and brakes on the way to the grid so that tyre pressures could be bled back, which, again, we talked about a lot last week. Um, we actually saw Scott McLaughlin and Cam Waters crash on their way to the grid at Albert Park that year during uh, what looked to be a fairly hectic tyre warming cup. So I think all that stuff sort of played into the decision to ban those fans. So, um, you know, you can't be quite as aggressive on how much heat you put into it because you can't then cool it all down uh, when you're sitting on the grid. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Back to Darwin, you know, uh, Mostert was disqualified. The team lodged a notice to appeal. There was no appeal against the breach as such because they admitted to that in the hearing. So, you know, they couldn't say, oh, we didn't do it because they definitely did do it. My understanding is that the appeal was over the severity of the penalty and it was based on some ambiguity in the wording of the stewards' findings. One paragraph says the fan was a performance advantage. Another says it was a a potential performance advantage. Um, And I think the argument would have been along the lines of, you know, if you're not sure about – you know, where this sat in terms of a performance advantage, how can it be treated with such a harsh penalty? We won't know that for sure because Motorsport Australia rejected the notice to appear on the grounds that the paperwork was filed too late. Now, this is a messy, messy situation, and one that may not be over. Uh, the team isn't saying much, just that the situation is ongoing, uh, and that's despite Supercars and Motorsport Australia saying that it isn't ongoing, that the matter is entirely closed. Um, Stefan, I wanted to get your thoughts on some of the major points regarding the situation. Firstly, the severity of the penalty itself. I mean, Supercars talks a lot about not penalising drivers for mistakes that the teams make. We saw Adrian Burgess on TV talking about that with the uh, with the the rattle gun issue with DJR in the third race. You know, we don't want to penalise a driver for this. It would be a team's thing. This was clearly a mistake. Um, it was a mistake that a team member made. Is the penalty too harsh? Based on what we know, it does look incredibly harsh. And we've talked before about why there needs to be a zero tolerance on on tech rule breaches. Yeah. Um, But the distinction here is this is a sporting rule. It's Division D for anyone who looks at the ops manual and sees it all cut up into separate sections. So this is in the sporting regulations. So I was surprised to see the wording in the steward summary um, saying it's a technical breach for which the universal penalty is a DSQ. Uh, and we, we don't see the recommended penalties table. That's not something that's public knowledge. But yeah. for a sporting rule like this, there's scope for, for less. I don't believe it had to be a DSQ. So yeah. that means for me, it's it's important to know if the driver gained an advantage or not. Um, and as you say, there's mention of advantage and potential advantage. Those two phrases were both used there in the report. So this comes back to like supercars has data from all of the cars. So was the engine any cooler than the others at the start of the race? Like was that data looked at as part of this process? What was it? Like for me outside looking in, the transparency on this stuff is useful in order to understand it. So at the moment, there's way too much of a leap between the crime and the outcome 
that those two things are public knowledge, but where's the bit in the middle? So if there was an advantage and the thing was running cooler and making some more horsepower on the opening lap, for sure. For me, that's a DSQ. But if there was no advantage, then it should be a team penalty, just like you were talking about before with uh, with if, if Anton had run over that rattle gun. It's not Anton's fault, so it would have been a team penalty. That's I, I agree with you entirely. And the, the thing is you really have to wonder if, you know, one of these little fans, they're not exactly – it's not, you know, connected to an air conditioning system or a dry ice box or anything – would that have cooled the motor enough for Chaz to then do a warm-up lap, sit on the grid, hold the thing at 6,000 revs and dump the clutch and the motor isn't like already back at basically peak temp? Like it's, it does – I'm no engineer or mechanic, but it sort of seems unlikely that there would have been a huge performance advantage to it. The, the, the point that anything tech-related where there can be a performance advantage has to be a blanket DSQ is that's – that has to be the case. You can't leave the door ajar for teams to get away with anything. But, you know, the point was raised over the weekend by people in the paddock that there have been instances in the past for much more serious breaches where the penalties have been different, you know. Um, the bend with the drop gear incident comes to mind. Uh, I don't want to go too deep into this, but Bathurst 2019 with the engine issue in qualifying, different situations obviously, but it's an interesting observation uh, if nothing else. And like you say, they have the data to find out. Was there a, was there a performance advantage um, or or not, you know, for, for this thing, it seems highly unlikely. So it does seem like a harsh, it does seem like a harsh penalty. Yeah, think- and, and when you're talking about previous cases, I think like this does sting a little harder because in Darwin last year, the same event, they had the Nick Perkat Brad Jones racing car where yeah. its tire pressures dip below the minimum on the grid, uh, which should be a DSQ, but the team self-reported replaced the tyres before the race, argued it was a team mistake, all of those things. Um, driver gained no advantage and the, ended up with the team's points, I think, that Nick Nick's car earned in that race yeah. were scrubbed, but Nick wasn't affected because it wasn't his fault and there was no advantage in the race. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think that having been the – that caused a lot of angst in Darwin last year. So it was definitely unfortunate that, uh, yeah, this conversation's at the very same event. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I think if this had been a team's points uh, penalty, it would have gone away very, very quickly and we wouldn't be sitting here. Well, we'd be having this discussion but not not the next part of the discussion we're about to go into, which is, you know, let's get on to the appeal and stuff. Like, you know, if, 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 the, if the appeal had been heard, do you think the team would have had a case? Well, as you said right at the top, they admitted the breach so they could pro- they could appeal against the severity or the way the rules were interpreted. And the fact that they they wanted to, they intended to, however that worked out, they uh, they were keen on putting their $10,000 up that you have to do when you lodge your uh, notice of intention to appeal, appeal within an hour of the, uh, the finding coming out. Um, that suggests that they at least felt that uh, they had a case they could win. The appeals are very hard to win historically, but, um, you know, unfortunately... We won't know. Yeah, that's that's for sure. It is, you know, it's the way that the appeal sort of got tossed out as well, or the or the intention to appeal got tossed out. Uh, the motorsport Australia processes processes are obviously complicated. There was a sense from the team, you know, off the record, perhaps that the administration mistakes went both ways on this matter, um, and there could have been a bit of leeway to maybe get that appeal through. But it's without 
being involved in the situation, it's very hard to know how that whole scenario really played out. The third point, Stefan, is that, um, you know, WAU clearly does plan to keep pushing on this matter or certainly by Sunday night in Darwin, that was the plan. Um, it could be that that has to happen outside outside of the Motorsport Australia system altogether or at least ends up outside the Motorsport Australia system at some point. Could this become more trouble and expense than it's worth for the team? Yeah, I think if you're talking about going to a civil court with a racing matter, then firstly, the, the optics on that aren't great for anybody. But um, the first question that's going to get asked is, were all the sporting avenues for appeal exhausted? And then you've got to have a pretty good explanation as to what actually happened there uh, on Saturday evening. So from here, for mine, WAU is probably better served making sure it's got its house in order going forward. Obviously, this was one of two DSQs they picked up on the weekend. They yeah. had one last year at SMP for an unrelated technical breach. And they're also, they, I think they, they copped team points and a fine at the AGP for for having too many people on the grid for not uh, respecting the, the grid procedure regulation. So, yeah, I, th- I think there's a bit of a pattern going here and they need to sort some of these ones out. Yeah, that's a really uh, that's a really good point. I guess it does. There, I, I think there's a bit of personal feeling in this on, on both ends. Like, let me make this very clear: I'm not suggesting decisions have ever been taken on either side of the ledger based on this. But there's undeniably a history between WAU and Supercars head of motorsport Adrian Burgess in the way that their relationship ended as well. So I don't know if that plays into 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 the matter at all. But you know, it's a it's just a fact that. There was a messy ending there between between that person and that team, um, and I guess it has the potential to create an interesting dynamic. Yeah, you'd certainly uh, hope that that doesn't play any role in in any of this. But um, it was uh, it did catch my eye that one of the few like real details in the stewards' report was mentioning that the head of motorsport, which is Adrian Burgess, was the one that actually witnessed this and reported it in. He's he'd sent the photo. Um, to which which was the smoking gun which got them excluded so yes he was uh, he was right in amongst it that's for sure well it was a reasonably tough weekend for Erebus Motorsport in Darwin the team struggled for any sort of consistent results I had a chat with Brody Kostecki on the Sunday evening to talk about that uh, and about his bold plan to race in NASCAR next year here it is reasonably tough weekend I suppose how do you sort of reflect on where you're at pace wise and and that sort of stuff from, from the weekend. Yeah, sort of really frustrating weekend. Um, you know, thought after Winton, um, you know, especially for Sunday, you know, we had some pretty good pace and was pretty excited about coming back here. And um, Erebus cars have been pretty good here in the past and we weren't too bad yesterday on the Saturday and um, we tried to make some changes going into Sunday and, um, yeah, the car just sort of did a 180 and we were sort of way out of the window and qualifying. Yeah. And, um, yeah, especially with the quick fire format, um, you know, on the Sunday with the two collies and you know, no time to, you know, really go back on things. Um, yeah, sort of put us pretty poorly for the races and, um, you know, in the races we weren't really too bad and, you know, the first race today on the Sunday, um, you know, we pitted lap five so we'll ask and, you know, quite a lot to sort of make it to the end and almost jagged, you know, sort of 11th place there and, you know, come home in 16th but, yeah, sort of a bit of homework to do and while we so sort of shitty today and um, you know sorted out so um, you know there is speed there we just yeah. um, you know we just can't seem to get it sort of consistently so what happened with the safety car thing today with the with the, um, with 
the PLA Oh, I got a drive-through. Um, I looked down as I was leaving the lane, um, like a bit of a doofus, and didn't see that the red light was on. Yeah. Um, sort of, you know, assumed as well that you know the train had already passed me at that point. So, um, yeah, just a bit of a silly move, but yeah, didn't really ch- ch- change the result of our race. So, um, we, you know, we were lap down pretty early from pretty stupid manoeuvre going into turn one, but um, it is what it is. That's what happens when you qualify last. Yeah. Um, do you think you can turn things around for Townsville? Obviously, completely different style of circuit and all that sort of stuff. Are you confident that you can go there and have some car speed? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty confident everywhere we go. We just need to, um, you know, get better at being, you know, a bit more consistent with, um, you know, the qualifying cards. You know, there's, you know, especially when... Um, you know, I guess the, the tyre pressure thing changed as well and just threw a few, a few more things into the works um, that sort of caught us off guard a little bit as well um, I really like Townsville so um, I'm hoping that we go good there Some interesting comments late last week about some plans to head back to the States uh, and do a bit of racing next year so have you actually got something in the works for a proper you know, partial Cup Series program over there? Is that what you're looking at? I don't have anything set in stone. Um, yeah, whether it's Cup or Xfinity, um, I'm not really too phased. Just, I just want to do more more racing next year, yeah. so that, that'll go along with you know my supercar schedule yeah. next, yeah. next yeah. season. So to clarify, it's not, you're not looking to make yeah. a switch. Yeah, so it's just, it's just more, more racing in general, so um, I think a few people sort of read it a, a bit differently with... Um, <laughs> with you know what I want to try to achieve and that's yeah. just you know race more oftenly so we only race 12 or 13 times a year and um, you know that that doesn't really satisfy me so I want to race a bit more we always think of you know when supercars guys doing NASCAR as road courses would be the way to go but you've got a lot of experience in oval racing as well would you look at doing both or just road courses or what's the kind of plan yeah I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do a road course and um, see how I go there and, and then um, you know sort of just go from there so you were over in the States recently. Were you having some chats with people there? There's obviously, you know, there's still Aussies in the paddock. James Small was over in the paddock over there and that sort of stuff. Were you sort of catching up with people from the States that you know from your time there and, you know, Aussies and trying to piece some stuff together? Yeah, I was able to catch up with a few old friends and um, actually got to catch up with Smallie. So, so that was pretty cool through uh, Barry Ryan. They're uh, pretty tight, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah, got to hang out with him and he got to show up around, which was cool. And um, But... Yeah, we'll just just see what happens. Stefan, that's a fascinating plan that Brody is working on there. We've seen drivers going down the GT path in terms of bolstering their programs before, but this feels like something a little new and different. Um, there's a lot of crossover in technology between supercars and the latest generation NASCAR hardware, and Brody does have significant background in 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 racing in the US and oval bitumen oval racing in the US. Would this be a good move for Brody? Do you think? Oh, absolutely. If he can find himself an opportunity over there, it would be just an awesome thing for him to do in its own right. But it's probably also just going to help him in his supercar stuff as well, just driving driving all the time. And like you say, there's a bit of crossover now with the cars technically, with the, the next-gen NASCAR going to independent rear ends, 18-inch wheels, sequential transaxle, all of those bits and pieces. Like, um, you know, even the, even the Penske NASCAR guys are – using a uh, supercar to, to do some road course training. So yeah. um, it'd be great to see Brody, Brody get a shot. Um, the road course level in terms of driving standards, I think, is, has risen a fair bit over there since like the Marcus Ambrose days where he used to yeah. clean up pretty well. But um, you'd back Brody in to be competitive. And with the background he's got, an, an oval wouldn't be out of the question either, you wouldn't have thought. 
No, no, absolutely. Would be fascinating to see how he would go over there. Before we move on from the supercars news, here's a handy little offer for anybody heading to the OTR Super Sprint at the Bend on July 29 to 31. Uh, Castrol Motorsport News listeners can get 10% off Grandstand and GA tickets by clicking the link in the show notes and using OTR10 as your discount code. It's a bumper program with supercars, super utes, Carrera Cup, Aussie racing cars, Group N Historic and Sports Sedans. And buses will be running from Adelaide CBD, Mount Barker and Murray Bridge for $5 each way. Alrighty, let's chat about that spectacular new deal for the Australian Grand Prix, Stefan. The existing deal has been replaced by a new 13-year agreement for a race in Melbourne. So bad luck, Sydney. Five round one slots, including 2024 and 2025, which means it won't be the season opener next year, but it's still likely to be one of the first three races, I think, for most of the deal is sort of the expectation of the AGPC. Um, Stefan, looking at all the elements of this deal, are we onto a winner here? Oh, it's, it's fantastic news. Like... Um we all know it's very competitive at the moment to get a slot on the Formula 1 calendar, more so than ever. Uh, a lot of countries are pushing to be a part of it and uh, and other states of Australia too. Like you look at the reaction from the SA Premier and the New South Wales Premier. Um, it's I guess this is the amazing part for me is that it wasn't long ago that the Victorian government would get smashed up every year for how much they're spending on this F1 race. And yeah. the newspapers would be full of it in the week leading up to the event. And now... Save like, Albert Park. Yeah, and now if you're not a very good premier if you're not seen to be throwing money at it, no matter which state you're running. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's great to have it locked in for Australia, but also even as, a, uh, as an Adelaide man myself, like Albert Park is a great precinct for it. So... Um, yeah, I think it's in its rightful home and it's, uh, yeah, good to see it locked in going forward. And it's just looking more and more and more likely that we're going to have actually a Melbourne boy, a Bayside Melbourne boy on the grid next year in Oscar Piastri. So um, obviously that would be an absolutely huge thing. And it's sort of interesting that, you know, okay, five round one slots, but I guess this year kind of disprove the theory that Australia has to be the first race to be a big event because it was a huge event, one of the biggest, and it was the third round. So uh, I think the kind of the, the the sense from the AGPC now is that if we're in the top three, we're very well placed. That is an important place to be, um, but it doesn't have to be round one. So, look, I, I think it's an amazing deal and it's a very a – very, um, good thing for us. Maybe something I'm not as sold on is FIA Formula 2 and Formula 3 heading to Albert Park as support categories next year. To me, that's a bit of an odd one given we have such strong local supports and one of the best undercards on the Formula 1 calendar anyway. Plus with the freight costs at the moment, you know they're out of control. I'm not sure the F2 and F3 teams will be absolutely stoked about it um, or at least the, the fathers of the F2 two drivers and their three drivers that will ultimately foot the bill for it. Um, supercars won't miss out, but other local supports will. And, you know, the other local supports pay to be on the bill as well. Um, what's your take on that, Stefan? Yeah, it's a weird one. I can't actually really see who's who's driving this at the moment. Um, it's only the one that came out of left field and it'll be interesting to see what else sort of comes out about it. But, um yeah, F2 and F3 don't normally do these long flyaways due to the cost. And, and it seems like the Victorian government is picking up the freight tab for this, whether directly or just part of the, the bigger deal with F1. So, yeah, yeah I, I'm not sure if 
if there's great value in it, I don't really see for, for the event that it's going to sell any extra tickets. But um, as you say, supercars are still going to be part of it, like AGPC have, have been really on the front foot with that. But um, I'm sure there's a bit of horse trading to be done in terms of track time and, and paddock space and, and all of those sort of things. You would You would think supercars would probably keep their pit lane because of the corporate spend that goes with yeah. with the top of that structure but how they actually yeah formulate the layout of the precinct and, and fit those f2 and f3 support paddocks in will be quite interesting to see how they do all that in terms of the other support categories yeah i guess this is the one of the downsides is that it's a shame not to see our other categories get to be on that big stage Mm, this year, though, yeah. they did. They only had three support classes: supercars, Career Cup, and S five thousand. And I think the previous year they'd had four, and the year before that they'd had five. So you would think that Porsche would still be a reasonable chance of staying on if they wanted to have four, because uh, they do spend a fair bit of money again in corporate land and the yeah. fan activations and stuff that that they do there. So yeah, we'll we'll see how it how it looks, but you would hope that at least uh, there would be four supports. Yeah, I think that's a fairly I think that's a, a fairly good bet that you'd have you know Formula One, Formula Two, Formula Three supercars and and Carrera Cup on the bill there next year. Look, there'll be a novelty factor for at least year one of having F two and F three in town and combined with supercars. Like it is a powerhouse undercard on paper. Um, and that was kind of my first reaction, but then you think, is it really going to be a great spectacle, those cars around Albert Park, a circuit where overtaking can be a little bit tricky? And, you know, as you mentioned, the GP is such a huge stage for our, our local category, so I don't really know who the winner is, and I don't really see it as a long-term solution. But, you know, there'll be a novelty factor, and for guys like us that absolutely love motor racing, it'll be fun to see these new categories, um, you know, competing uh, in person, but... Yeah, it's still. I'm not 100 percent sure who the actual who the actual winner from that deal is, or, or how it really came about. All right, let's take a look at what's happening around the world. Max Verstappen held off late pressure from Carlos Sainz to win the Canadian Grand Prix in Montreal. Lewis Hamilton was third, and Daniel Ricciardo just missed out on points in 11th after a long stop during a VSC. The Formula One te- technical chiefs will meet with the FIA this week to work on a solution to the ongoing porpoising issues with the latest generation cars that the FIA is keen to stamp out in the interest of driver safety. MotoGP series leader Fabio Quadraro dominated the German GP at the Saxon Ring. He's the first rider other than Marc Marquez to win at that circuit since 2012. Johan Zarco was second and Aussie Jack Miller third despite serving a long lap penalty for crashing under yellow flags in FP4 and Remy Gardner finished 15th. Okay, it's Castrol mailbag time. David Roberts asks, with Gen 3, should supercars make all data available to all teams in real time as per NASCAR? This appears to have leveled the playing field between the large and small teams. Stefan, what do you think about that rule? It's an interesting question. Uh, and to be honest, I don't know a lot about how it's been received in NASCAR. I believe they've had it in for a few years. But... Um, there is sort of a version of it in Super 2 that's been around since the start of 2020 where after each session, so it's not live, but after each session, the fastest lap um, data and, and onboard camera vision is given to, to all teams. So when we say data, that's the basic, mainly driver stuff, throttle, brake, steering angle, yep. road speed, that, that sort of thing. Um, 
And I think in a driver development category like that, that is quite quite good. Like you've got you've got rookies coming in that can only afford to you know single car team, low budget effort. It, it sort of helps them them raise their level and and get the basics right. It's a bit of a shortcut, but in professional motor racing like supercars, top tier, like for me and we talk about Gen Three and, and some of the technical stuff that they've. Uh, They've done with that. Like, there's too much socialism going on in motorsport and supercars already. I knew your uh, your classic socialist motor racing line was going to come out at some point here. <laughs> oh, I reckon you've got to figure out how to drive and set up your own car. That's for mine. Um, yeah, there's, there's categories too that crow about how close their field is at the moment. Like, maybe you've made it a bit easy if everyone's within eight tenths of a second maybe the actual craft of it has become too easy so uh yeah it's it's not it's not something you could have you could have just said Carrera Cup you could have just said Carrera Cup Stefan <laughs> it's not something that I'd like to see come in but uh what do you reckon I do I do already have concerns over these cars being too alike uh, the Gen 3 cars I mean because we often use the example of Carrera Cup which has the formula to be the greatest racing series in the world and is not the greatest racing series in the world it just doesn't produce fantastic racing because the drivers if you're a good driver you know how to get the best out of that car and there's very limited ability to tune and it does take its toll on the racing product you know there's guys in supercar saying there still will be enough adjustment even with control suspension parts so that teams and drivers can make a difference Um, i really 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 hope that is the case i think it Maybe the case because there's still a lot of talk about how tricky the Gen 3 cars are going to be to drive, which is probably a good thing. But then if you can just, like you say, you can just share all the data you've got, or you have to share all the data you've got with everybody, yeah, I mean, that's this is still a sporting competition and you should be able to make changes and have them work and keep them to yourself um, and let other people try and work out that on their own. So it is an interesting idea. I guess it comes back to if you really want to try and force everything down the entertainment path. But again, I'm not sure that it actually helps entertainment. If everyone's rolling around on the same setup, you're going to have a bunch of really good drivers. You know, it's hard enough to overtake now. We're trying to make these cars easy to overtake. Making them all identical won't help that, in my opinion. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, Gen 3, there will still be a lot of uh, scope to set the cars up yeah. differently. It's the, it's the hardware they're making control, not not the setup. Yeah. But, yeah, with, with all of these things, like I, I think I think it's a shame that we have to talk about for so long the minimum tyre pressure. Like, yeah, it, it's a shame that it has to be standard across everybody. You should you should be able to pick your tyre pressure and, yeah. and take your risks accordingly, but uh, that's just how it is. Yeah. Alrighty, let's hand out some Castrol stars of the week. Tickford Racing gets my gold star this time around for getting James Courtney's car fixed in time for race three after that nasty race two shunt. I was in the garage shortly after the car got back and uh, when they said they were going to try and fix it, it really did feel like an absolute waste of time. So just to highlight the severity of the impact, they found a taillight from Scott Pye's car in the boot of JC's car, Um, but they got it done, which was quite remarkable. I'm not sure it would have been the funnest race car in the world to drive, but they got it out there. So absolute kudos to the team for, for, for taking the risk because it would have been very easy just to park it in the truck and give up. But they they rolled the dice on getting it done. They put their guys to work and, and, and they did it, which was which was incredible. So uh so um good on them. Just just like Stefan, given the given the footage of the damage from what you were were you surprised when that car rolled out for the final race? Yeah, it's it's always hard to sort of eyeball engineer a race car from from the TV, but um yeah, it certainly uh, took a couple of big hits and it looked pretty secondhand. 
But uh, also, I mean, if your star of the week is Tickford for repairing that uh, that car on Sunday, then mine can be Tickford for repairing that car on Friday because uh, those boys had to do a fair bit of work across uh, multiple days. It was obviously a really tough weekend for them. Yeah. But uh, I should probably make my star of the week Nathan Prenegast, the uh, longtime Supercars TV boss who had his final weekend with Supercars on the weekend before moving on to his next challenge there with uh, Supercross Global. He's uh, done an exceptional job for a long period of time. And uh, from what I hear, he was uh, farewelled uh, in pretty big style there on Sunday night. Would oh, you yeah. happen to know anything about that, Andrew? I've got the T-shirt to prove it. There was, uh, yeah, no, it was there was a fair bit happening. There was a fair bit happening at Throb Nightclub in uh, in the middle of Darwin. On Sunday night, I, of course, left nice and early because that's that's how I roll, but there was some uh, – I think there would have been some fairly sore heads from, from maybe some less experienced party goers on, uh, on Monday morning. Let's just put it that way. Well, that's it for this week. Remember to like, subscribe, and review our work wherever you listen to your podcast, and we'll be back next week with more Castrol Motorsport news. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars unforgettable. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication and so much more for all sorts of makes, models and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 W Racing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.